Hello and welcome to The Masked Cricketer, a cricket Q&A podcast based on the live show that took place over the UK lockdown of 2020. In this episode, K-Dog and Woodsy are joined by another cricketing legend. Today's Masked Cricketer has played with the upper echelons of cricket and society, even making an appearance in The Archers. Today's podcast and the live show are all about raising awareness and funds for the Lord Taverners charity. Woodsy, you gotta tell us, who's the Masked Cricketer? Are you, and I reckon this is going to be right, Mike Gatting? Oh, looks like you could be right, Mr. Woods. Oh. He's really good at this, isn't he? He unmasks very slowly. I, I wish I had some drum rolling here. It'd be so good. There we go. Hey. Right, Gatting. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good stuff. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's really good of you. Good sport to, to be with us. And that was brilliant tension building for, for us. That was <laughs> superb. How's the last few months been for you? Well, I suppose like one of those early tours where you, you go to somewhere where you, you weren't very acquainted to the sort of conditions. Like remember my first tour to Pakistan and you sort of went from ground to hotel and there wasn't a lot else to do in the evening. And it was a huge shock to the system. I mean, they're fantastic cricketers, but it was a huge shock to the system of, of not being able to really go out at all and, and actually uh, do much. Uh, and so it's been very much like this. We've walked the dogs and come back in and uh, got used to this uh, delivery service that I've not been used to. I'm just about getting now to the end where I need need to get out and about and shake a few hands and uh, have a few drinks with a few friends and uh, watch a bit of cricket. I know the cricket's been on just recently, but it's still not quite the same sort of sitting in your front law, well, in front, front room as you have been for the last three months just watching TV. It's been hard work. It's about time we were able to get out and about, but we're still not quite there yet. Absolutely. Uh, you did mention <laughs> last night that Mrs. Gatting was uh, making sure that the flowers were growing. So you had the you had the hose pipe going. You didn't want to drown. So have you have you been doing the horticultural stuff, or, or have you just left that to, to the missus? No, no, no. Um, my job was to sort of. We've been doing a bit of pruning, and we've even been pruning when you shouldn't have been pruning, really. But it hasn't affected the flowers with the weather we've had, and, and and that it's been fantastic. So, yeah, I've been doing a bit more gardening than I've ever done in my life. That sort of kept us going, and I've learned a few uh, few new things about where to cut plants and where what to do, and uh, we've even, even planted a few. So it's been uh, it's been quite quite fun doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've I've done much more than I ever have done in the past. The one thing I, I wanted to start off with with my questions, if if we could, is is your football career. Obviously, with Oxford and a, a certain Northampton town, and and a little bit of a, a goalkeeper that well, we discussed that probably didn't take your place at QPR, but quite a good signing anyway. Can can you give us a bit of a background on your on your football? Yeah. Well, I suppose uh, it, it all started off at a very youngish age. I sort of, funny enough, kept goal once for Edgware Town. And that sort of brought about a, a trial at, at Wormwood Scrubs at QPR. They were asking for some young guys to come down and I was asked to go down. And trouble is, I was only about five foot seven then. And there was this bloke called Phil Parks. He was already six foot at 13. And um, I think uh, that sort of turned the tide a bit. I wasn't uh, taken on board. So I had to... Uh, make my way to the outfield, being too short for a keeper, as one of my great friends was. You mentioned tonight, Ian Gould. He uh, he was obviously uh, a gunner. Uh, he uh, he played for the Arsenal and played as a keeper, but obviously came and played cricket with us, fortunately. Yeah, so I ended up at Watford as a fullback. I think I probably was the last cricketer to play uh, first-class cricket and play at Northampton Town for Watford Football Club in the same year. So uh, it was uh, quite a, a nice uh, so pub question, which is... Uh, we're always looking for those at the moment. Yeah, so uh, that that was it. So I played against Northampton Town at Northampton, where we play cricket. They used to have a just a little sort of uh, lots of sort of signboards in between, and we had to go to the pub in the far corner of the ground for lunch. So it was a flipping huge walk. So by the time we walked down, there was ten minutes. By the time we walked back, it was another ten. Didn't have much time for lunch, so you never put any weight over at Northampton. It was always a, a good evening meal you had to have. Brilliant. And, and I take it a certain Phil Parks signed 
ahead of your goalkeeping skills? Is that fair to say? Uh, he certainly did. He certainly did. Phil Park was, as I say, six foot already, and uh, he uh, he covered probably more than goal than I did. So uh, I think he made it, and he, he certainly could clutch the ball uh, way above where I could get to. So I think they uh, they made the right choice, I believe. <laughs> I mean, was there any regrets of, of not sort of taking the football further, or or we? I mean, obviously, with your international cricket career, I'm assuming not. But no, I I I got to the stage where I was asked whether I'd like a contract at Watford, uh, and I said to the trainer, who was a, a very ferocious man, I said to him, I said, "What have I got to do to improve to sort of get out of this division into the next one?" He said, "Well, see this corner flag here and that one down there." He said, you've got to be able to sprint down there inside sort of 10 seconds. I said, oh, really? And I, and I said, how long have I got to do this? He said, well, you'd have to do it for quite some periods of time to make sure you get a bit quicker. And I thought then that probably wasn't going to be for me. I'd rather be netting or bowling or batting or fielding. So, And it was Lords, which is the best cricket ground in the world. I was very fortunate enough. I think I made the right decision and I've had uh, many, many happy hours and days and weeks at that wonderful cricket ground. It's it's something we didn't touch on last night, but it, it must have been just fantastic being at a home of cricket, being your actual home ground must have been just just awesome. Every time you went down the through the long room and down those steps. It, it was fantastic. I mean, because I was obviously I was born in Kingsbury actually, just down you know, sort of the road and then, then moved to Willesden, sort of the rough end near near Harlesden. And so it wasn't that far away from me to St John's Wood and uh, you know, you had to go through Kilburn and then up uh, uh, up through uh, St John's Wood and in, into Lords. But it, it was incredible to be living within a sort of, I think it must be five or six mile radius of, of where Lords was. And uh, I never, ever dreamt as a young kid when we would play sort of garage way cricket where you used to play up against the old draw the stumps up with my brother. And we used to used to use a sort of driveway in between the two houses and we'd play cricket or football in there. And to sort of you know, go down the park and play with the kids like we used to, hop over the fence and... Everybody would join in and it'd be a sort of a, a free-for-all, really, whether it be football or cricket. Uh, it was just uh, different times. And to actually end up walking through the gates at Lords, where I did get stopped when I was uh, turning up for a, my other first what, first or second day at, uh, to, at Lords and got stopped by the very, very diligent gateman saying, don't be silly, you're too young to be playing <laughs> uh, uh, for Middlesex. And I said, well, I'm, I'm coming along to be 12th man. And... Uh, it took a bit of time to get through, but then I understand there are lots of many better cricketers than I got stopped. Mike Brearley, Sunogavaska, um, even people like Mike Selby. But he had a T-shirt on with no whacking furries on it, so that probably did, that was one of the deciders. But they're, 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 it's, much, it's much, much better these days. Uh, Lords has changed entirely. The, the stewarding down there is just absolutely fabulous. And they've got some wonderful people who seem to be slightly more, uh, what I'd say, uh, personable then the uh, it was a bit like once you got into uh, Lords, they wouldn't let you out, and sometimes you just couldn't get in. A bit like a prison, really. But it's it certainly changed now, and they they've really made it a very welcoming place, and uh, it's uh, slightly more what I'd say a pleasant place to be in and around. Were, were the lunches as good as I hear people say they were? They were without doubt the best. I mean, when you when you think, it wasn't actually Middlesex providing the lunches. I might add, it was actually MCC. So it was uh, the best cricket ground in the world providing the lunches. And they were uh, fantastic because the MCC committee committee men expected some decent lunches, and that's exactly what they got. And you got to remember, there was actually beer on the table as well. When I played in my first few matches, there were beer bottles of beer on the table, so you could go in and have a bottle of beer. But if you, if you saw that now, I remember John Embry having pints of lager shandy in '76 because it was so hot in that hot year. He bowled, I think, most of most of the day, and by the time he got to tea time one day. I said, do you want a cup of tea? And he said, you, you've earned it. He said, no, mate. He said, I want two pints of lager shandy. So he sent the, the dressing room attendant down to the bar to get two pints of lager shandy, which he promptly dispatched. But no, it, it certainly changed when you go up there now. But the food itself it has always been absolutely outstanding. And I think if you speak to anybody on the circuit, well, I have to say the circuit has improved. And I think with all this new diets and all these things, uh, they are very much sort of in the forefront of the, the, the county uh, chief executives, whereas before lunch sometimes was a sort of a well that'll do them and uh, we can save a bit of money there and uh, they can have a decent meal in the evening sort of thing so yeah oh, brilliant Kieran over to you 
Thanks, Daryl. Yeah, Mike, I can certainly vouch for the the food and lunches and laws. I had the pleasure uh, back in 2000 and 2001, I was, I was covering Middlesex for the Press Association and I used to share the press box with somebody I'm sure you'll know, the legendary Norman de Mosquita. De uh, very, uh, very eccentric chap, but uh, a very, very nice man. And he always used to beat me, despite my size, he always used to beat me in the lunch queue to get to the front of the queue to get the best stuff. So yeah, I can certainly vouch for that. We're getting loads of questions in, Mike, as I thought we would. I think we'll touch on this one first because you've probably been asked this so many times over the years, but uh, it is kind of something that sort of defines part of your career. It was certainly one of the first things I remember. The uh, the Shane Warne delivery, the very first ball <laughs> that Shane Warne bowled uh, in this country in a test match. You were uh, uh, perceived as a, an expert at playing spin uh, and it was it was a fantastic ball. Was it, do you think, the best ball that you or anybody faced in the 1990s? do you think? I would say it was good enough for me. <laughs> but now you, you talk something like Ian Healy was behind the stumps. He said, you know, to get something like that, you, he said that you would be, you were one of the few players who, who tried to play it properly by just opening up and trying to make sure if it did turn a bit, you could get to, to the pitch of the ball. But yeah, it was one of those things. I mean, uh, it was one of those strange games because we, as it always does at Manchester, it rains and, and Australia had won won the toss and had a bat first. And so it then rained all day or all afternoon, to be fair, sort of just after tea, and it chucked it down. It wasn't just sort of, you know, little drizzles. It was hard. And nobody thought we'd play the following day, but uh, Dickie Burb was up there umpiring and he got us out there the following morning. But I think uh, Warney and Merv Hughes, who were, uh, and Merv was supposed to be looking after Warney as his sort of chaperone just to try and show him the ropes of, uh, of of test cricket and what happens. I think they went out for a beer that night. Well, I think they had more than one. Anyway, so uh, we, we got there the following morning and um, we, we had to play. Fortunately for us, our captain decided to get a spinner on early and it, it started to turn and Tuffle and such bowled them out pretty quickly. So just uh, just after lunch on uh, on that second day and uh, I think Gooch and Robinson went out to open the batting and um, they they the sun came out and it dried out and it was flat wicket. There were just a few sort of little holes where the bowlers' follow-throughs had made indentations. Anyway, Robbo got out somehow, uh, and I found myself in sort of about half an hour before tea. And Gucci came and said, all right, come on, Gat. He said, we've got to get through till tea time. I said, not a problem, Skip, not a problem. Uh, we get through, and then I think sort of the last over before tea, Alan Border said to, to Warney, mate, he said, come and have a bowl. He said, see a little fat twat down the other end. He's a good cutter and puller, mate. Make sure you pitch it up and bowl it straight. And as Warney says, I mean, you know, we have a giggle about it most times. He said he just tried to run up and try and spin it as hard as he could and just bowl it pretty straight. And it started off pretty straight, middle stumpish. And, and as the ball was spinning through the air, it really, you could hear it, you could hear it fizzing through the air. And it was a leg break. It was, it was easy to see. And it just drifted in at the last minute, as it always does. But it drifted in quite a long way. And it pitched outside leg stump. I just sort of was worried about it bowling behind my legs. But as Gucci said, it wouldn't have got past my big ass. And it, it sort of just clipped the top of the bale, off bale. That's why I stood there, because, you know, didn't hear the sort of clatter of the stumps. It was just sort of flicked the bale off and off it went. And I thought, actually, in, Healy had, in his haste to get back to the offside, because it turned so much and so quickly, that he might have just knocked the bale off, but it wasn't to be. But Gucci gave me a bit of stick for losing concentration because it was tea time and he saw us thinking about those jam donuts and uh, and those sandwiches. So uh, I got I got a double double whammy. One for having a decent ball and two the captain giving me some stick about not concentrating before tea time. But there we are, one of those things. But it was a fantastic ball. I mean, and he he, he was a bowler. It would have been really upsetting actually had he sort of uh, uh, some some described him as a bit of a beach bum and. Uh, and he was uh, surfy and, you know, he was never going to be a test cricketer. So it would have been really upsetting if that had been sort of a bally bowl to me and it had been one of 17 wickets. But the fact that he got some 717 was uh, not not a problem. I suppose you say it's a privilege to be one of them. But uh, he certainly, for me, uh, was uh, and is and will be for, for many years, I suspect, one of the, of the best spinner in test cricket. That's uh, an amazing sort of... A feat to actually get to that sort of stage. So, uh, no, Warney, and the great thing about Warney as well, he inspired a lot of young kids to actually bowl leg spin, which is a very difficult art. So it's, uh, he, uh, he's done a great job as um, promoting the game, the way he played it as well. You, you read a really good point there. He, he was uh, obviously a master of his class uh, and the amount of young cricketers that you see that do try to emulate him, even now, he's, you know, he's long retired now, I think 10, 12 years ago, but, but kids still try to emulate Shane Warne and uh, it, it's really good to see because I think leg spin was an art that had 
pretty much fallen by the wayside. I think Richie Benno was one of the last great leg spinners and it kind of fallen by the wayside, hadn't it? So for him to sort of set his stall out then from 1993 onwards, people wanted to bowl leg spin, didn't they? Yeah, they did. I mean, uh, when I first started playing county cricket, the, we had actually a guy at Middlesex, Harry Latchman, who, who bowled leg spin. And there was Hobbsy, he played Essex as well. So they were two in the local area that, that, that bowled. And you had uh, Intergarb Allen, who, uh, who played for Surrey. So there, there were leg spinners around. One of the Mushtart brothers bowled leg spin up at North Hants as well. So, you know, there, there were lots around that bowled leg spin in the sort of 70s, late 70s. But then it just reverted back to sort of finger spinners with left arm and, and, off, and off spinners. Uh, you, had, you had basically two in each side. But when a leg spinner came on board, it was, it was a different kettle of fish later on in the stage. And so I suppose I was lucky. I had a bloke called Ted Jackson who, who, who actually coached me as a young kid and he actually bowled leg breaks. So, um, but he was about six foot two. And when he came, I was only very short anyway. When he came over the top, it was sort of coming from almost nine foot. And we had some concrete nets at Bronsbury where I started and uh, he made it turn and bounce on there. All right. So uh, I had a, had a good, uh, a good coach and, uh, so it helped me learn to play leg spin from a very early age. You just mentioned coaches there, uh, Mike. Did you have many coaches through your career and who sort of stood out for you as a people person, you know? Well, not really. I, I think I probably had two. And I think if you talk to most uh, of, of, the, of the top players, they would have only had one or two. Ted Jackson certainly helped me when I started at the age of 10 and, and took me through probably to about 14 or 15 when Don Bennett took over our county coach and... And Don really was was the guy that we worked with. Uh, apart from the players, it was very interesting. I, I didn't appreciate it, but fourteen or fifteen, I went up as we always did on a, on a Wednesday night to to play in the age group stuff. So we were sort of under fifteens, practicing one night, and we were there. Uh, the first team started to turn up in January, so we'd been practicing sort of since October in the indoor nets uh, through the winter once a week. But then the senior team came up and they started practicing on a Wednesday night from sort of second week in January. And all of a sudden I found myself <laughs> in, in a first team that Don Bennett thought it would be good perhaps just to keep my uh, feet on the ground, I suspect, and, and give me a bit of a lesson about actually you think you're good, let's see how good you are against what you're supposed to be sort of looking to be. And uh, it was rather embarrassing, sort of 10 or 15 minutes for me. And at the end, Don Bennett came and said, well, little way to go then, Gat. I said, yes. He said, well, you better go and have a chat with Clive Radley. And Rad was fantastic. He had a little chuckle because he, he knew what was going on because Don had obviously briefed him. Rad sort of came in and just gave me a few, few uh, pointers. But of course, um, told me what to do if they bowled away swingers. But then all of a sudden, the next week, they bowled in swingers too. So, so they made me look an idiot two weeks in a row. But it was a great lesson. And, you know, Rad was, was very good. And he said, you know, the quicker you learn how to do this and, and, and what, what level you're at, uh, he said, you do most other things okay. He said, but, you know, you've just got to learn certain, certain things. And it was a great time for me. So when I got on the staff at 17, with a lot of other good players, Gouldy being one of them, it was it was uh, you know hard time you know people like Nigel Ross, Martin Vernon, all sorts of of, of people who were, who were very very good cricketers already and um, yeah it was it was uh, it was it was very good but Rad was excellent um, so Rad sort of helped and and obviously when we got in the team I mean Don would obviously take us in the second team and and, and obviously put us straight he was a, he was an ex professional footballer as well Don but he was a very un, un, underestimated uh, county cricketer. He got a lot of wickets and a lot of runs for Middlesex, but you very rarely hear his name mentioned. But he was, he was a very, very, very talented all-rounder. And, he, you know, he, he wouldn't say much, but when he did, you listened. And, you know, once you got in the first team, uh, Rad was also very, very good. So when you batted with Rad, he would talk to you and, you know, he said, oh, people think I'm ugly. And when I bat, he said, it doesn't matter how ugly you are. He says, it's how long you stay here. He was, he was actually, he was fantastic. And, he, he, you know, you talk about cricket as you always did, sitting around the table. And, you know, when you went to, to play in away matches, you know, you, you find yourself sitting down with uh, Rice and Hadley, listening to the senior pros talk about cricket. And, and, and that's a great way to learn. We spoke about Clyde last night being an inspiration to you. Was there anybody else in that Middlesex side or even the England side that were inspirational characters for you as, as your career um, continued? Well, I think I think you always learn lessons along the time. And I remember one of the very, very hard ones we learned. We, we at Middlesex thought we had a decent cricket team and the Yorkies came down and they absolutely hammered us. 
uh, and we thought we were good. And so it was one of the thing that sort of always stuck in my mind is, you know, you think you're a good player, but um, there are always others out there that are, that are better than you at, at that moment in time. So you've got to keep working hard at your game and whatever. But no, there were lots. We had, a, we had a very, very good side. And I mean, it was always interesting, you know, listening to the batters. They always went to the bowlers to see, you know, how am I playing? Are my feet moving in the right place? So it was always quite interesting. It was never the batters talking to the batters. It was the batters talking to the bowlers. And actually, sometimes the bowlers are asking the batters, is, is the ball coming out of my hand well enough? So it was, it was a... It was a very nice atmosphere in our changing room. It was, it was, it was really a lot of people in there who were, did it their own way, uh, and they were, they loved winning, and there were some very talented cricketers there, um, all the way through. So I was very lucky uh, to come into a, you know, a very, very good side. And I suppose the youngsters that were there, Gunner and myself, sort of came through as the first two, I suppose, of that sort of beginning of an era when there were a lot of young kids come through. I mean. We had five cricketers of West Indian descent at one stage in the Middlesex side, which is, which is amazing. You know, when you think about how sadly the lack of, you know, West Indian cricketers are around at the moment in whatever. So people like Will Slack, who was obviously out from your part of the world, out in Bucks, and uh, we had Neil Williams, Norman Cowans, Roland Butcher. And we sort of, you know, had, had, a, had a huge amount of... And Wayne Daniel we had. So, you know, you had five guys. And, and Wayne Daniel was outstanding. I mean, how he never played any more cricket for the West Indies, I don't know. But then you look at the squad that they had, you could understand that uh, it was always going to be somebody, somebody who was injured maybe, but uh, they had a, an unbelievable squad. So, you know, Mike Brearley came in and changed things around and, and he was obviously another man who, who understood people, who knew which strings to pull, if you like. And uh, he sort of started to get the team together. Uh, and as I say, there was a huge amount of talented cricketers there that he managed to to pull through and he, he understood that, that you needed to give the youngsters a chance but at the same time they needed to earn it as well so that was Don Bennett's job down in the second team to make sure we did the right thing to give the captain a choice if, if he needed some. Brilliant. Uh, Kieran I know there's quite a few questions coming in and I know it's, it's touching on one or two that we we went through yesterday. Do you want to take up on, on those? Yeah, I will actually. Um, so there's a, there's one question. We'll, we'll talk more at length about your career in, in general, uh, your batting career particularly. But one of our regular viewers, Matthew Matthew Lee, wants to know what your best innings in an Ashes match was. If you can sort of let him know. In an Ashes match. Yeah. Uh, ooh, um, I suppose there were two, and neither time I got a hundred. One was. Well, a couple of innings we played in, in the 1981 series, actually, at Trent Bridge. We played on a very dodgy wicket and fortunately, I don't know, you know, managed to, managed to hang around both innings for a, a period of time. And I think it was only 150 scored in the match. And it was against sort of people like Rodney Hogg, Dennis Lilly, Alderman. I think those sort of guys were all, all around at that stage. And it was, it was a lively wicket and it was a very low scoring game. That was probably one of them. The other one was probably in 86 in Sydney. Uh, where we were chasing in the last innings, although we'd won the Ashes, I really wanted to win the last match at Sydney because I played great cricket then. I'd love to have got 100 and I got naught first innings. And we were chasing some runs and I got to 96 and I, I smashed this one and Dean Jones dived full length at point to stop it. And we only needed six and over. And then the next ball, Steve Waugh bowled me a, a sort of a leg cutter, which uh, just, just held up a bit in the pitch and I got caught and bowled. But that against uh, on a turning pitch, chasing some runs, I was in with Jack Richards for for a fair bit of the, the time towards the end until he got out, and then I got out, and sadly we lost with two balls to spare. It was one of the uh, more interesting Test matches uh, I played in, aside from obviously eighty one. So yeah, I suppose Ashes series uh, that for me they were the sort of innings that you remember, not necessarily the big hundreds uh, because a lot of the a lot of the donkey work have been done by the guys up front, like Mr. Broad, who we've mentioned quite a lot of times uh, there. I suppose one of the, the most enjoyable one was my first one, actually, here in the UK, which is at Old Trafford. I got 160. That was in the, the 85 series, which uh, uh, was really nice to do. So to get one, obviously, on home soil was very important too. Can I just come in there? Because I, I mentioned last night, didn't I, that it took you until your 54th test match to actually score your first century and we talked about was that a little bit of a block because i know there are some cricketers that will be watching that are looking to emulate the greats and 
they may be struggling to get to that magic three figures. What sort of process did you go through? What what was your sort of mindset in that afterwards? Because it went very very well after that first test hundred. Yeah, I think I think it's like everything. It probably took me a year. I think at Middlesex before I got a hundred. And once I got one, I got another one the next match, which is just uh, it's just silly, really. But uh, I think I think it's just certainly when we were playing in our, in my early days at Test cricket, I wasn't fortunate enough like David to actually get a hundred in the first Test match, hook this first ball for four, and never look back. And he obviously, I would say, had obviously won won the ability, a huge amount of it. Um, but also had the self-belief. And I think a lot of it is is a bit about self-belief. It's a bit about feeling that you, you de- deserve to be there. As I say, making making the most of it. By the time I played Test Cricket, I'd got a few hundreds by then, so you knew how to do it. You were playing then, obviously, against better people, better players. And if you, if you made a mistake at Test Cricket, you generally paid for it. And the trouble is, when we were playing around that era, we had so many good players. If you didn't do anything for two or three Test matches, you got dropped. And so you're always sort of going in and out and you had to cope with that sort of the highs and the lows. And then, you know, as, as everybody kept saying to me, he said, OK, fine, you, you haven't done it done it this time. Just go out, get some runs from Middlesex and you'll get there again. But the trouble is, the longer it goes on for, there is, without doubt, even though you try not to read the newspapers, your mates phone up and say, do you see what somebody else said about you? My God, you know. And however hard you try and put that in the back of your mind, it, 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 it sort of does, does, without doubt, build up. But as I say, the earlier you can do it, the better. And, you know, when you go into a test team, you should be confident and you've got to believe in yourself. And so, you know, it's about getting out there and, and actually doing it and just doing what you actually know you can do and forgetting about the other the other bit over there about whether you should be there or not. fact is you are there, so just do what you know you can do and keep it simple. Absolutely. Kieran, sorry, I did interrupt you there. I know you're in full flow. I'm going back to the K-Doc. I know he's got some more questions for you. Uh, yeah, no, you, you were talking about, um, obviously, the first 100. You, you you mentioned yesterday that you were one, one of the first sort of players with, with a partner to actually score double hundreds together in a, in a test match, I think, over in India. That that must have given you a, a great deal of pride because, obviously, going over to the subcontinent for, for an English cricketer is incredibly tough. Just, can you just talk us through through that particular innings uh, with, with your partner that you batted with that day? Yeah, with, with Foxy, crikey. I mean, that was uh, that was an amazing tour for, for many reasons. There were two assassinations. There was We, we lost the first test match. Yeah, there was there was all sorts of things going on, but that particular time we we we'd gone to Madras, we'd had a draw in Calcutta, so we lost the first one, we won the second one in Delhi, and then obviously had a, a draw in Calcutta, and then when we got to Madras, we we all said that you know it was probably a wicket we we could we could actually do do quite well on, you know, uh, over the years it had been one of those wickets which might just seem a bit first down if you can bowl them out. It then turns into a, a good wicket and then turns sort of the last couple of days. Well, we didn't win the toss, but they batted, but we managed to bowl them out. And then uh, we sort of started to bat, and, and, and Graham and, uh, and Tim Robinson had a huge partnership to start with. And I think I got in just before tea time on the second day. Fox had been batting most of the day. It was about 90 degrees, humi- 90% humidity as well. And so you were sort of trying to change gloves every half hour. You were... When you first got out there, not too bad. But then after a while, the, the, everything sort of got at you, the heat, the sort of whatever, you go in at tea time. I'd only been out there, for, I think, for half an hour before tea, but I was, you know, went straight under the cold shower and, you know, Foxy'd been out there most of the second day. And so it was uh, by the time it got to the close of play, poor old Foxy was absolutely cream crackered. And I remember sort of uh, just, uh, we just set our target out to bat for as long as we could. They were bowling tidily, I think, at one stage... You know, they're just being quite defensive. But as I say, we, we managed to keep the concentration. And I think that's what it was. You're just having a chat sort of and setting yourself small targets and whatever. And, and day day sort of three, when we both went out there again, uh, I think uh, Foxy had, was sort of 100 and something or other. And I was, I'd just got to sort of 70 or something. So we both had sort of uh, landmarks to get to uh, on the third day. And again, it was really hot. Uh, Foxy was was tiring. Um, I know the night before, I said, you know, I think I got down to face the last over, and he said, "Oh, best luck last over." I said, "Yeah." I said, "Look, you absolutely knackered. Just stay up there, and then I'll take take the last over." He said, "What?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "Yeah." 
<laughs> you, you've done your job. You, you get up there and I'll, I'll, I'll face it. Like, you couldn't believe it. So he took his gloves off. We played the last day, last over, and off we went. But I say, it was rather a hard, hard sort of uh, uh, mentally and physically sort of way to bat. There weren't too many running of threes. <laughs> it was fortunately once it went past the outfield, it was it was generally four. But they had a lot of scouts out, so there were lots of ones. So you were you know, forever sort of trying to rotate the strike and whatever. And then they started defensive bowling and kept talking to each other, saying, no, keep going, and the more we can get, the less others have to get. And he got to 200, I got to 200. Yeah, it was it was just a, a huge moment. He, he got 201, I went past and got 207, then I got out. And I have to say, it, it was, I haven't been so tired ever. And I thought we were fit by then, but it was just the, the, the loss of fluids and, just the concentration and, and just uh, it was it was a very satisfying thing. Neither of us knew anything about that. The, the, it's only uh, it never been done before. None of us, neither of us had, were doing that. We were, we were just trying to make sure we got to 600. So we had a chance of uh, winning the test match. And, uh, and that's basically what we did. And as I say, it's something I'll never forget. And I'm sure Foxy won't uh, ever forget. It was uh, just a, a fabulous to be part of history and be the first to ever do it. When you think of all the great players that uh, who have played together in teams and Fowler and Gatting, first to ever get 200 in the same test innings. Incredible. Definitely something to be proud of, isn't it? And something that I don't think is going to be re- repeated very often, if ever. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll stay in the subcontinent, Mike, if we can. Um, we, we can't, we've had a few questions come in. I always like to tread carefully, but we did sort of touch on it earlier. The issue with uh, umpires and uh what was said to uh, Shakurana in that sort of famous sort of mid-80s um, thing. I think that um, there were a few issues with previous umpires and uh, and obviously that, that that's something that, that sort of stuck with you. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to sort of talk to you about what happened and whether whether you sort of uh, ever made up and, uh, and and how that sort of sort of turned out in the end. No, we never made up, sadly. Uh, so that was uh, something that never happened, although he did try. Uh, he turned up at a at a match at Worcester. And it was a nice, lovely, sunny day. The sunroof was open, so I closed that and then the windows because I could see he was coming. And I spotted a, a photographer, which was always a bit of a worry, uh, and, then a, and then a reporter as well. So he was obviously out to do something. He said he wanted a cup of tea with me to sit down and shake hands. And I said, well, you had a, a chance to do that uh, last year, and it would have made a huge difference. But you had your chance. Thanks very much. And there was a huge spread in, uh, I think it was a son in the end, uh, saying I was how rude I was and uh, blah, blah, blah. But no, the, the actual incident itself was just an accumulation of stuff that sadly, now that neutral umpires are there, it will never happen again, which, which is actually very, very good. So there, there was a, I suppose, a, a, a distinct sort of, what I'd say, disagreement about, about the rules. And it was really about moving players whilst bowlers were running in. And, you know, generally speaking, uh, umpires shouldn't get involved in that. And it's normally the batsman at the other end. If there's a field of moves, the batsman at the other end. You say, hold on, hold on, he's moving back there. And it goes from there. And it happened, I think, once uh, that particular afternoon. And or well, actually, it was just, yeah, just before tea time. So anyway, it was getting a closer play. And we wanted to, you know, we, we were in a very good position. We'd, we'd actually got sort of 400 and they were sort of uh, 70 odd for five or something. And I'd moved a fielder, wanted to bring the fielder up to, to, to bowl at the new batsman. And uh, Sally Malik was the batter. In order to not cause a problem like we had before tea time, I said to Sally, I said, look, Sally, I'm bringing all the guys up uh, to save the one. He said, not a problem. And a guy called David Capel from Northamptonshire Cricket Club, funny enough, very good all-rounder. He, uh, he was down there and he was, he was as always very enthusiastic, even though it was the end of play. He hadn't done much bowling because it was turning square. So he, he'd been... Not not well used. And he, he charged up and I was a backward short leg and he was getting a bit close. So I didn't want him to get two. I didn't mind him getting one if he wanted to because uh, it means Salin would have, you know, would have won. But anyway, it, it didn't really matter. He just getting a bit close. So all I did was actually just put my arm out like that to stop him from getting too close. It just went like that. And Mr. Rana thought I was moving fielders again when the bowler was running in and, and it was it was for him to sort of step in. We, we had a disagreement. I can't exactly tell you what I say because it's not right on radio uh, or, or anything like that. So we, we didn't have a drink after the game. Uh, and sadly, as I said to him at the time, I've told told Salim I've been moving the fielders. And anyway, following morning, we had a we had a huge conference with both sides and everybody. And, and he was asked in Salim Malik to, to the tribe and said, uh, 
did Mike tell you he was moving the fielder? And he said, yes. So I just said, okay, look, I said, I'm prepared to, because they wouldn't go out the umpires. So I said, I'm prepared to apologize for the bad language I used last night. And, you know, you can apologize for calling me a cheat because obviously I told Salim that I was moving, moving the fielders. And we were just about to shake hands and somebody said something out the back. We, we never got to it and uh, we didn't play for two days. It was very sad. I would like to think, because you shouldn't argue with umpires, and I, I say this to now and I'll say it here because you don't want kids and you don't want people to be arguing with umpires. But I think I know at the time Imran and myself were talking about it and he was obviously involved in the cricket then over there, Imi, and he was, he was talking about neutral umpires. And I think, uh, well, I hope, it might have hastened the neutral umpires, which now takes all that angst out of the game about home umpires and people cheating, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a much, I think, better game for it. Fabulous. I think Daryl's got something just to uh, change, change the tone, something regarding uh, something that happened to you facing Malcolm Marshall back in the 80s. Oh, so Darryl, <laughs> you know what's coming, Mike, I think. I, I do. I was going to ask who's the, the best bowler you faced and obviously give us a little bit of detail I understand that somebody in the press might have asked you where where Malcolm Marshall actually hit you. Where it's pretty obvious where he hit you, I'm guessing. And you, and your and well, your favourite bowlers actually your favourite bowlers to play. Well, there's not, well favourite bowlers are, are the easier ones. Um, the ones that like Malcolm Marshall, I think probably David Gower might have told you that he was uh, the one he 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 least liked to face. And I think Graham Gooch should be the same. And they're two of our very very best batsmen. Yeah, I got to the airport having been hit on the nose and came into Gatwick and uh, somebody rushed through the uh, the doors as the press conference opened and asked the question, where did it hit you, Mike? And I'd got sort of two big black eyes like this and I'd got a, a, a cross where I'd had five stitches and some strip had got been a cross on my nose like that. So you could quite easily see what had happened. And I, I was so bemused by the question, I sort of think, oh, I should have said Jamaica. Because he said, where did he hit you? I should have said Jamaica. And that would have, that would have stopped him. So I wasn't quite quick enough for that. But I just said, I think X marks the spot. And, and the boys down on the floor just fell about laughing because they, they just couldn't believe this bloke had run in. But no, we, we, we were playing as we always did in those days. Uh, we had a, uh, a little stop at, at each island. So you'd play a four-day match. And then you'd play, certainly if it was, say, Trinidad, you'd play a four-day match against Trinidad. And you'd play a one-day international and then a test match. And so you spent a bit of time on the island, which was lovely. And you got to know the people and you got to know the island itself to a degree. Um, and you could unpack your bags, which was really nice. So we'd played the four-day match on the other side of the square. Cause it was quite a big square at Sabina Park in Jamaica. And they, uh, they said we're going to be playing on the other side of the square where they just relayed some pitches. <laughs> we got there on the morning of the match, uh, sorry, the, the two days before the match, to have a look at the pitches, to have a practice. We got there and uh, people might might have had time to actually relay their lawns this year if they wanted to. But if you uh, if you do relay your lawn, you water it and you, you sort of put the roller on it. And if you put the roller on too soon, it sort of you get a little bit of a wavy effect on it because it, the water is too wet and the turf sort of moves. Whatever. And I think that's what happened. And the trouble is, once they started to roll it too soon, the heat just sort of baked it dry so quickly. So you had a sort of some slight undulations. And it was probably the same pitch that they actually had an abandoned test match on sort of two series later, as, as we saw on TV. And, and I have to say, it was, uh, it was quite a lively because uh, we were all hoping David Gow was going to win the toss uh, and have a bowl first just to see how the pitch played, but it, we didn't. And they, I think they had Patterson, Holding, Marshall and Garner were their, their first four bowlers. And I walked out, I think, about 12 for three. And I was met by Gucci. And Gucci said, hey, Gap, we're in a bit of trouble here, mate. I said, yeah, we, we are. I said, we're talking. He said, no, mate, no, mate. He said, that bloke Patterson, he's coming over the top of the sight screen. You can't hardly see him, he said. And that bloke Holding's bowling the speed of light. And he said, he said, what's more, he said, I think somebody could get hurt here. <laughs> no true word was said. And it was, it was. I mean, uh, Mako, we saw off Holding and, and Patterson and we, we were moving along and, and then Mako came on and he was a different kettle of fish because he just ran up, hit the scene, bold line and length and he hit me all around the body. I didn't get up the other end and it uh, got to a stage where I had to try and do something and um, I went for a pull shot and the one time he probably decided to bowl an in-swinger, it, it sort of hit the upslope a bit and came up very quickly and I couldn't get my hands up quick enough and it hit me straight on the nose and there was blood everywhere and Beefy, uh, Beefy wasn't playing in the match. He had sunstroke, I think, so he, he came on with a physio and he, he helped me off. And yeah, so it was a, it wasn't a very nice thing. Mako came to see me in hospital, and I went went home. 
got it fixed, came back out again, played in the first test match, a first match afterwards against Barbados. Hopefully, going to try and play in the the, the test match on Barbados, and uh, I broke my thumb. So it wasn't a particularly uh, good little trip. That yeah, it wasn't very nice. And then when that pillock at the airport said, "Where did it hit you?" It wasn't very nice. No. <laughs> You couldn't script it, could you, really? That's terrible. You mentioned a couple of other bowlers you faced there. Uh, I think Holding and, and Sylvester Clark. Are they right up there with the fastest you faced? Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and don't forget a guy called Alan Donald as well. There were probably three spells. Uh, I was on the end of the one that Boycott was uh, batting with in 81 in uh, Bridgetown, Barbados, where he, within five balls, had uprooted Boyk's uh, uh, middle stump in the first over. And I managed to last a couple of overs before I got my pad in the way I want, I think, and I was LBW the holding. But uh, that that was a quite a, a, a rapid spell. And then Alan Donald, um, we played a, uh, on a pitch against Warwickshire at Edgbaston, and it was just after a test match where Kirtley Ambrose, player for the West Indies against Michael Afton, bowled this length ball, which flew straight over Michael Afton's head, uh, which prompted a huge smile from Kirtley, which is uh, is legendary. He, he Well, they finished a test match in three days there. And uh, we happened to play sort of three days later on this same pitch. And uh, Alan Donald bowling with a white ball. Uh, he came on first change, I think. Uh, he made one bounce and just fly. And I think... Uh, square leg sort of running back to the boundary he managed to catch it off the shoulder of my bat and my whole bat was just split but he bowled for certainly an over or two at me it was very difficult to uh to actually negotiate as and, and, and sylvester clark the same it was probably the only time i've never seen a ball at the oval i think john embry had stirred him up a bit by saying when he came out to bat he hasn't got a helmet on hit him on the head which is not a very sensible thing to say to a fast bowler of sylvester's uh caliber and so uh, I faced sort of six overs from him which were very very lively as I say the first first two first one I didn't see second one I just did and uh, they both ended up about two feet from the rope at the uh, the pavilion at the oval for uh, sort of four buys and four leg buys because the first one just brushed my helmet and uh, Jack Richards couldn't get anywhere near it but uh, that was also another very very lively spell mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you back in, I think it was 2007, I, I believe you were president of the Lord Taverners. We'll come on to that in a moment. But you had a performance uh, in the Arches, I believe, in 2007. Yeah, that was fantastic. They were doing a, a, the, the village, obviously the Arches, I can't remember the name of the village, really wrong, bad of me, but they got to the village cup final. We were uh, doing our sort of, uh, I was supposed to be saying, I would just, just come in to see the, the, the people from the village. They had their box there, so uh, we went in to pop in to see the, the dignitaries of, uh, of the archers and uh, their little sort of village team. And we were just uh, talking, and I had just a couple of lines to talk about, which is, which is just fascinating in one of the most iconic sort of radio shows ever. To be a part of it is fantastic. Um, I think I've got my lines right, you know, not too badly. And... Uh, Yes, uh, a young lady was uh, was supposedly uh, was there, and she she didn't understand cricket, so um, we had to explain a little bit to her. But it was a very very basic sort of thing, and it was uh, it was very nice to be a part of it. And the, actually, the amount of people who phoned up, ah, oh, you're in the arches, couldn't, and it was just uh, incredible just to see how far and wide that went around the world. Me and Kieran are always fluffing our lines or fluffing the questions, so we're, we're used to that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, Kieran's more professional. I keep forgetting that. <laughs> I'm Kieran in again on you, Mike. Changing room incidents. I think you had some quite some characters at Middlesex and and in the uh, England side. Any notable sort of incidents? Oh, there, there was there was there was probably uh, a couple, but uh, as I say, one. I think Philip Tufnell got in. Cat got in before me once at Lords, which is quite unheard of. And sadly, he, he sort of said to me, I said, Cat, what's happening? What are you doing? So I said, uh, the wife uh, has just gone out to buy a couple of pints of milk and she hasn't come back yet. I said, that was two days ago, Cat. He said, yeah, I don't know what's happened. I said, how are you coping? He said, oh, I said, mate, I'm just using the powdered stuff. But, you know, that that's just Philip for you. He was he was a very sort of uh, phlegmatic character when it came to things like that. He was, uh, yeah, a very, very fine bowler and a very, uh, very good uh, good cricketer but uh, very hard to deal with at times. Um, but as I say, when he got a ball in his hand and he was on the good pitch, he was, he was fantastic. So it was always great to have around. I suppose one of the nicer ones was, uh, was Angus, actually, and he won't mind me telling me this. It was actually during the time when they were knocking down the grandstand and they'd just taken the top level off the old grandstand. It was a 
lovely old brick building, which was fantastic. And they'd dismantled it and they'd taken the top level off. And we were playing against, I think, Gloucester it was. For some strange reason, I, I asked Gus to bowl the sort of uh, penultimate over before lunch. Embers was bowling at the Pavilion end, so he was never going to bowl at the end. He wanted to bowl that. So I said, Gus, just give me give me an over before lunch, just out of out of interest. And anyway, he, he rucked it. You should have given me a bit more warning. And Anyway, he ran in and bowled, and I think his first three balls went for six. And uh, he got really cross and, you know, kicking the turf and whatever. And then his, his last one went for six as well. It was a fantastic shot. Anyway, he was rucking and kicking the ground and moaning, and quite rightly so, because I hadn't given him much of a chance. But uh, he, he sort of went off. Anyway, the boys convinced me to say to him, look, Ember's bowled that last over, so let him bowl the first over after lunch. I said, oh, I don't really want it. He said, no, no, please, please. So I said to Gus, I said, I'll give you a bit of notice now, Gus. You've got the first over after lunch. Not from your end, because Embers wants to bowl there still. So you you bowl at your end. Okay. So uh, we, we got down. And anyway, John Carr, he was a very mischievous little man, a very good cricketer too, I might add. Great catcher. He had got hold of a couple of airmail stickers and put them on the ball. And as, as uh, Gus sort of looked around where the ball was, uh, he... He got tossed this this ball with two airmail stickers, one either side, because the ball had disappeared out of the ground four times in his last over. But even the umpires found that quite amusing, and they did manage to scrape scrape off the stickers. And uh, I'm not sure he'd be able to do that these days, but uh, that was that was one of the one of the, and then one of the other ones, I suppose, which is a really nice one, was actually in Australia playing that Sydney Test match um, with one of the umpires, uh, Steve Randell. He didn't give Dean Jones out, caught behind down the leg side just before lunch, and they had these carrots for lunch. And so I wrapped up some of these batons of carrots. I think about six of them wrapped them in a serviette. And as I was walking out after lunch, I gave them to Steve and I said, you might need these, Steve, after lunch. They might help you with your seeing. And to be fair, he, he took and put them in his pocket. Sadly, just before, just before tea, I actually dropped a half chance, at, I think, at short mid-wicket, and I dived and dropped it. And as we were going off to tea, Steve handed the carrots back to me and said, you might need these more than I do. And I don't think you'd ever get away with that these days at test matches, let alone any game, really, I suppose. But it, it was just a nice way that the cricket was played in, in that particular series. And the umpires, as I say, were pretty decent as well. I know one umpire that, at the top right-hand corner there that, that needs more carrots. Sorry, gay dog. <laughs> you were a good umpire, I forgot. Kieran, I know we've got some nice questions coming in. Going over to you again. Yeah, we've got some quick fire ones shortly, Mike. But just just before that, obviously the the main reason we're doing this, we've done this for the last fourteen weeks, is we're looking to raise awareness for the Lord's Taverners, which uh, it's become a charity really close to to Darren and my hearts as well. But obviously, you were the president of the Lord's Taverners for, for quite some time. Um, to talk about that in a moment. Just a few months back, right at the start of lockdown, actually, possibly even before lockdown had truly commenced, you you had the pleasure of uh, presenting a Lord's Taverners tonight in a bat to. Um, that wonderful man, Captain Sir Tom Moore, Colonel Sir Tom Moore, as he was uh, uh, upgraded to. So uh, that, that must yeah. have been a fantastic sort of honour for you as well as for him. Get to meet somebody that's done such amazing things at 100 years old to, to raise that amount of money. It was a, it was a lovely, lovely uh, morning that we had up there uh, with, with Colonel Tom and um, or Sir Colonel now, Tom. He was a, a really lovely man. You know, he was just doing this um, to try and raise some money for the local people. And it is amazing how somebody like like himself to be able to sort of just take up something like this and do it um, and then take everything sort of in his stride the way he has. I mean, um, it's quite phenomenal, the amount of TV, radio, all the media stuff. It was it was just incredible, uh, let alone the money that, that was going around. And I think it must have just um, obviously just appealed to some of the people all around the world because money came in from everywhere, knitted socks and all sorts of things that, from all around the world. And he just obviously just struck a chord with people. And But he was a lovely, lovely man. And the way he spoke on TV, radio interviews, etc. And and say so he took it all in his stride. He was, and, and just talking to him, you know, just about just things, uh, you know, the fly, he loved the flyby with the hurricane and the spitfire. And he was obviously very proud to be a part of all that. It's just fantastic. You know, it gives you great faith in, in the human race at times when, when things like that happen, it's really, really nice. And the whole family are fantastic too. The, and the people all around him that, that just helped to have a media company come in in the end to help because there was so much stuff going on. 
but he was always there. He was always prepared to speak to people and he was always very gracious about it, very humble about it. As I say, the amount of money that was raised in the end was just enormous and, and just heartwarming, as I say, for the human race. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I learned about Tom Moore was was obviously uh, when he uh, when he held, um, he played a straight back for Piers Morgan and refused to answer some questions. Anybody that can do that is a hero in my book. So, <laughs> <laughs> so just talking about the Lord's Taverners, Mike. Obviously, you you were, you were president. David Gower, our guest last week, is the current president. He's had a, a bit of an inauspicious start, but the Lord's Taverners to you, uh, what what does it mean? I mean? It's a fantastic charity. They do some great work, and uh, and you must have been very proud to to have been president for a few years. That was a great honour. I mean, it, it's a wonderful charity. It, it really is. It's fantastic that you do what you can. I mean, I play cricket, and and I was very fortunate enough. So the Taverners to me was a charity, being the number one cricket charity in the UK as it was then. And the way it sort of, I suppose, morphed uh, as, as time's gone on is, is great credit to the charity because it has to move with the times. And, you know, when it was initially about trying to help uh, as the actors who started it, uh, Tom Body, in, in 1950, when they started it by sitting in the tavern and seeing these poor kids trying to play a game of cricket outside the Lord's, Lord's Creek ground with a sort of rolled up bit of paper and whatever, they thought, right, we're going to try and help these disadvantaged kids, get them some kit, and also at the same time, let, let's why not uh, try and give some, you know, some stuff to the schools and, and, and to the clubs to help them uh, with kit bags. And that, that's really where it all started. And it's obviously uh, grown uh, in, into many different things to, to what it is now. But the, the, the whole thing and the ethos of the club is to have fun whilst raising money for really good causes. And that's really been the ethos in the way that the Taverners has run. We've got some wonderful people who, who work tirelessly, all the volunteers that work. But we've got some great programs too, and we're working closely with ECB now with regards to disability cricket. So we've got the Super Ones, which is a huge program, which is growing all the time. The one that I really like now is actually one that Ebony Rainford Brent sort of helped put together, which is the Wickets program, which is uh, not just about sport, but about trying to get the kids in the disadvantaged areas to understand the problems and talk about the problems in their local areas. At the same time, trying to get uh, into the, the sort of areas that they're talking about and try and encourage more kids to come and sort of get together and play in a team as opposed to gangs. And then you've got the recycling kit, you've still got the buses that people do, and, you know, it is a fantastic... And the table cricket, we... Before the lockdown, we'd, we'd just been with David to, to South Africa to try and launch, really launch table cricket uh, in South Africa because they were looking something to sort of really push out there. There was no better place to go than to Cape Town, to Table Mountain, to launch table cricket. And, you know, we've been very lucky in this country. Table cricket's taken off in a huge, huge way. And it's fantastic seeing these very severely handicapped kids playing in a team, playing a sport. And the passion is just incredible. And the sadness, you know, just winning and losing. And, you know, just talk to their handlers. And, and just talking to some of the handlers we, we spoke to briefly in South Africa, they'd never seen this uh, in, the, in, in this sort of format. And they were bringing people along and the kids just absolutely loved it. And so I suppose if you put that all together, it, it, it is, you know, with kit recycling as well, which has gone hugely well. We've had to get a bigger warehouse to get all the recycling done, all the kit done, and it gets sent out to all different parts of the world. And we've got, a, you know, we've got places now sort of in Australia, we've got a, a Taverners sort of franchise. You've got one in Ireland, you've got one in South Africa. And the Lord's Taverners does a lot all around the world where it can, and it, it tries to work with the the, the, you know, the ECB and the ICC is to try to get kit to areas that need it. So it has really morphed, it's grown, but again, still the same ethos is there. It's about having fun and raising raising money for the, the, the disadvantaged and disabled children. And I always get a tear in my eye whenever I see the kids sort of turn up to get their bus because these kids sort of sit in their classroom and they draw pictures, you know, they say, well, where would you like to go? So they draw a seaside or a farm or, or a fun fair or, or a zoo or just being down on the beach. They, they, they just sort of all of a sudden see this bus and something just clicks in their, in their mind. All of a sudden they can go to these places. They can get out of the classroom. They can actually go to the seaside. They can go to the fun fair, go to the zoo. They can go and see different people. And as we always say, you know, um, travel broadens the mind and, and, uh, is such a good thing to do for, for, for kids. And as I say, it always does that to me, but just seeing them play table cricket as well, uh, being down there at the finals and, and just seeing all those the kids just playing in teams is, is just fantastic. 
last week after the, uh, the the David Gower interview, I, I had a I had a lovely message from Richard Giles, who uh, who's the lead sort of coach and sort of well the lead in Oxfordshire disability cricket, and it was a really emotional message actually. He he was he was so thrilled with David spending some time with us as he will be tonight, and what he loves about the table cricket and the super ones, and it's, as you've hinted at there, it is is seeing the smiles on faces, you know, kids that can't physically can't take to the field to have that opportunity of playing in a team. It's just wonderful to see. And, and mm. it, it gives the team spirit and the camaraderie. And it, it, it's just a, a fantastic concept. And uh, as you say, table cricket on table mountain. Uh, I think David said last week, whoever thought of that as a, as a concept uh, deserves a knighthood, they said, because it was just yeah. an incredible way to launch it. Kieran, have you got any quickfire questions to to finish tonight? I've got one first before we do the quick fire. This is just just alluding to the very first question of the night, which we always ask Mike about. Uh, have you ever played a great chew? So the chairman of Great Chew, uh, I think you were president of MCC for a while. And I think you were present on the finals day for the National Village Cup when Chew uh, were mm. there in 2014. Uh, their captain uh, inexplicably won the toss and elected to bat first on a wet morning, and I think oh, they were bowled out from 100. But Dave Freeman, the, the chairman, says, do you remember the Chew boys singing in the long room at Lords in 2014? And if you do, what was their singing like, Mike? Uh, I, I I wouldn't say that I, I remember a side singing. I'm not sure whether it was a true side, but uh, I have to say it was it was loud, raucous, and they were certainly enjoying themselves, um, whoever it was. And I'm not sure whether it was true or not, but um, I have to say there were some, we had some really lovely evenings there um, when the village final's been on because uh, it really is uh, something special for the guys I know that come there and play uh, and it's certainly lovely having them there because you, you just see the the huge enjoyment and all and uh, just being at the ground is, is, is just seeing that on their faces is uh, is quite special. I was very lucky. Uh, I, I played there a lot but uh, to see these guys have a, a dream come true to play at Lords um, it is fantastic and uh, and well-deserved to get that far uh, in that competition. Absolutely. I I, uh, I was there that day covering it for the local paper, I think. And, uh, yeah, I gave the captain, Andy Harris, a little bit of stick for batting first when it rained all morning. But uh, they they did love the day. I know that. Um, there are a few mm. quick-fire questions, as we normally do. We have we, we, we primed him for one of them, the superpower, which I'll leave you to at the end. Uh, so, so, Mike, just a few quick-fire um, questions uh, in terms of uh, the, the best batsman uh, that you ever played with uh, either at test level or, or in county cricket? Steve Richards? Yep, can't go far past that, can you? So. Nope. No. And uh, presumably, um, in terms of the best ball, we, we've obviously mentioned uh, that the West Indies great. So we, we've touched on Malcolm Marshall earlier. You, you were saying yesterday that he was uh, probably one of the best bowlers you faced and also a lovely, lovely guy, wasn't he? He was. He was an absolutely magnificent. It was such a sad, sad loss um, at, at the age that he died. Uh, he had so much to give, and he loved. He loved working with the youngsters. He loved being in and around cricket, and he was a, an extraordinary, fantastic bowler and a, and a really fantastic bloke as well. Uh, and you know, it was just so sad to to have lost him so young. Um, and as I say, uh, I don't think you'll hear too many people saying a, a bad word about him whether as a person or as, or as his bowling. Um, but he, he was just a, a wonderful man. Yeah, wonderful man. I say, you know, if you talk about the, the great bowlers, I mean, you've got to put Shane Warne in that as well um, because you do have spinners and uh, obviously seamers. Uh, and I would say that, uh, you know, Shane certainly without doubt would, would be the other, other guy you'd have to put in there. As batters, you're only one, one, one category, but in bowling you've got uh, the step and fetch it's and the, uh, and the fasties, the nasties. <laughs> Something that David mentioned last week in terms of, I did say earlier that leg's been kind of gone out of fashion, but he also mentioned uh, uh, Abdul Qadir, who obviously we lost last yeah. year. He, he was another fantastic leg spin bowl, wasn't he? And uh, very difficult to face. He was. He was a, a lovely man as well. I mean, he, he loved bowling. He, he he loved trying to bamboozle you. He, he, I suppose in many ways, he he bowled many, many different balls, uh, more than more than Morney did. And I think, it was quite interesting, you know, just facing him as as opposed to Warney. And the one thing Warney was, he was just, his accuracy was so good. But with, with Abdul trying to bowl so many different balls, you you, you often got one or two maybe uh, an over that you could actually hit. Uh, on the other hand, if you weren't reading it very well, he could make you look an absolute idiot as well. Um, but that was a, that was a sort of you know the person. But 
the, to actually play cricket with him. Uh, he loved the game, and and again, you know, he was another one that uh, we just lost too 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 young. Um, he had a lot more to give to the game, and he just had a passion for it. He just loved bowling, and he loved being a part of it. Hugely competitive, uh, as you have to be as a, as a spinner, and uh, he 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 again was certainly certainly number two in my book anyway. And the last question for me before I hand back to Daryl to close with his with his weekly question. Um, we, we do have a, a lot of young cricketers that watch this. We have every week m- many from Oxfordshire coming through the Oxfordshire pathway and also uh, other counties as well. Uh, and I noted that as a youngster, you were the first batsman to score a, a youth uh, ODI turn on your debut, I think. You got 126 against West Indies. Um, if you could have one piece of advice to uh, young cricketers coming coming through the ranks, you know, somebody that maybe has some ambition, uh, what what would that advice be for, from your perspective, be that as a batsman or just a player? In I think certainly you've got to believe in yourself um, and, and, and keep it simple. Create a simple game. If you choose the right shots, don't try and get too carried away. Um, but you've got to believe in yourself um, and you've got to keep it simple. And that's what I'd say to uh, to you. Keep it straight. Keep it simple. Fantastic. Yeah, that's good advice, I think. And uh, I wish I'd adhered to that when Daryl's been telling me that for years. It doesn't, doesn't quite work. <laughs> I try every week, but I think I overcomplicate things. Daryl, over to you to finish. Mike, from me, thank you very much. It's been a fantastic evening again. Really grateful and um, hopefully we'll continue to work raise this awareness of a brilliant charity in the world's taverners. Thanks, Kieran. For, for me, I mean, I mean, the last two weeks have just been uh, incredible for, for me. To set this up 14 weeks ago with a with a young lad through our Oxfordshire ranks for the last two weeks to, to have David and, and yourself, Gats, on, uh, it's been a... Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. It really has. It's it's been a privilege to be on the same screens as, as a couple of legends. And I do I do because I feel that we should. Um, there's a couple of things I want to mention. I know we're going to ask you about your superpower. We're definitely going to ask you that because that's quite amusing. I, I'll, I'll wait for that at the end. Um, but I do want to touch on your Ashes victory in '86 and '87 because I think that's a hell of an achievement, and we haven't mentioned it tonight. So just a little bit of about that would be fantastic. Well, it was. It was an amazing. When you think there were, we were there four and a half months. Uh, we had 16 players. We had a test series. We had, we played every state and we had the Perth Challenge, which was uh, one thing that had been thrown in because I had the uh, the America's Cup in, in uh, Fremantle, just up the road from Perth. So they had a Perth Challenge, which included the West Indies, Pakistan, Australia and ourselves. That was a 50-over competition. Then, obviously, the World Series, which uh, was the West Indies, Australia and ourselves. I, it won't happen again because there won't be three tournaments, but I, I don't believe we've actually won the World Series uh, or had won the World Series up until that point. So it was the first time we'd done that. Perth Challenge. So, yeah, it was, it was just a monumental trip. And, and to have just 16 players to do it, they, they should all be hugely proud of what they've done. I know they are because it was just a, a fantastic trip. As I say, it, it, it just uh, it goes to show when a team can get together, you get the right uh, makeup and the right chemistry. Uh, we had a really uh, good coach in Mickey Stewart and a good manager. It just all, all came together. And again, it was about you know guys going out there and, and keeping it as simple as they could and, and doing what they love doing, which is playing cricket. And as I say, it was, a, it was a fantastic trip. Christmas was fantastic. We had the fancy dress and someone like a young Philip de Freitas, uh, dressed up as Diana Ross in even in high heels and all sorts of things. It was absolutely fantastic. And uh, the wives and the, the girlfriends came out as well, and uh, or most of them anyway. Uh, it, yeah, it, it was uh, just uh, one of the most memorable tours I think I've ever been on. I've been very fortunate enough to be in a, a number. Yeah, everything worked out well. As I say, it was uh, uh, one, of the, one of the very best. And as I say, I'm very proud to be uh, a part of it. And, and play with all the guys that took part. They they all did their bit. It was fantastic. Did you get to keep? Did you have a replica urn as captain? No, you didn't. You, you you I have a few replica urns in my in my study here, but we didn't get given anything like that. I think we got a we got a we got given a, I think a silver service uh, knife and fork set to commemorate the win uh, from the ECB, which is quite nice. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, a real achievement. And like I say, I, I mean, after the last two weeks, I could have sat listening to you and, and David all night, to be honest, with the great stories. And <laughs> so 
I, I mean, I have to say over the last 14 weeks, we've had some really good sports on, Kieran, haven't we? And it's just, again, been brilliant tonight. Uh, been a good sport. You've been really eloquent in what you've you said and, and some, some really good uh, advice and some great stories there. So really, thank you again for being our 14th Mars Cricketer. Superpower, Gats, what would it be? I think uh, I have to say what I would like to see doing, I suppose having this lockdown has, has brought it on, it's probably fairly topical, but uh, I do get worried that we're not looking after our, 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 our world as we do and even just reading the day that the River Thames has got the highest amount of plastic in in the, in the place for uh, the, the many rivers around the world. And I just wonder, just watching while certainly sitting out in my garden, how much quieter and how much less pollution there's been. Um, and I just, just hope that, that, that if I had a superpower, I would certainly uh, inspire the world leaders to really take a long, good, hard look at our environment, what we do with it, and just ask people as well to be careful when they're with plastic bottles and make sure they put them in the right places instead of throwing them in the rivers and, and whatever. And just generally, uh, yeah, try and think about what you're doing with it because uh, once we lose this place, it, it's not going to be a very, very uh, nice part of the world. And same with the forests as well. So, yeah, a bit, bit, bit that. Uh, there's lots of other things, but I think that's, uh, that's the main thing, I think. I think that's brilliant. Well said and wise words. You have been listening to The Masked Cricketer. Today's hosts were Woodsy and K-Dog. Theme music was Swing House by RKVC. It was thrown together by Daryl Woods and Kieran Bushnell. Special thanks go to today's Masked Cricketer, Mike Gatting. If you would like to make a donation to the Lord's Taverners charity, please head to justgiving.com forward slash the hyphen mast hyphen cricketer. Follow us on Twitter at Mast Cricketer. And if you wish to watch live, head over to youtube.com forward slash the Mast Cricketer and hit that subscribe button and bell. See you next time. Mast Cricketer.